Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Improper payments, fraud in nearly every major federal program, contracting irregularities and false claims. These problems roll on and on year after year. Whistleblowers who point them out and other problems need several legal reforms. That's according to the leading whistleblower attorney, Stephen Cohn of Cohn Cohn Colapinto. He joins me now. Stephen, good to have you with us again. Well, thank you so much, and it's always a pleasure. And you have written here in the National Law Review seven reforms, count them, that you feel are still needed to make sure that whistleblowing does what it's supposed to do. And let's run right through them. First on your list was Treasury Department must enact regulations regarding anti-money laundering. How does that affect whistleblowers? Sure. So first, as an introduction, all seven of these reforms have strong bipartisan support. Furthermore, as we've pointed out many times, objective and high-quality public opinion polling, including the Marist poll, have shown that 80% of the American people support more whistleblower protections. And one in four likely voters say that a candidate's position on whistleblowing could impact their decision on whether to support that candidate. So we're dealing with a situation in which you have seven pending whistleblower reforms, all with strong bipartisan support, strong public support, yet all of them are stalled either within an executive agency, which is ignoring the problem, or within Congress, that is busy debating whatever they're debating, as opposed to you know, getting a job done. So you, we start with the money laundering regulations. Last term, Congress unanimously passed, unanimously, the Whistleblower Improvement Act for money laundering and sanctions. Full support. Yet the Treasury Department has not implemented any regulations. So what does that mean? Whistleblowers don't know how to file claims. They don't know how to obtain the benefits of the law. There is nothing on the Treasury Department website explaining this law. So if you think about how bad money laundering is worldwide, and it also covers all sanctions violations, Iranian sanctions, Hamas sanctions, ISIS sanctions, Russian sanctions, And a law exists, yet the Treasury Department has done nothing that we know of to put forward the necessary public rules to guide whistleblowers and even inform them of their rights. That's unacceptable, and it could change literally in two weeks if someone in the Treasury Department would do their job. So we're calling on public support, push Treasury to do their job. All right, let's move on to the Justice Department. Since you're writing, since January of 2021, they've required people to accept anonymous and confidential whistleblower disclosures. Those regulations aren't there yet either. This is one of the most frustrating problems I've had to deal with. I've actually met with Justice Department investigators on major money laundering case, and they had no idea that federal law required my whistleblower to be anonymous. 
Now, why is this important? Think about money laundering. It's an international crime, often organized crime, drug cartels, drug dealers, terrorist financing. If there's any group of whistleblowers in the world that need the strongest confidentiality protections, it's those who are reporting money laundering and sanctions violations. Who has the inside information about Hamas financing, about Iranian financing of terrorism? Who has that? And think about how vulnerable these sources of information are. Congress said as of January 1, 2021, that every one of these whistleblowers can go to the U.S. Department of Justice anonymously and confidentially and make their reports. Yet there's nothing on a website, no operating procedure, no rule, and the agents responsible for investigating and interacting with these informants don't even know of the legal requirements. Totally, completely unacceptable. The January 1 law was completely bipartisan. Totally. There was no opposition in Congress to this right of whistleblowers that was deemed so critical in this important area. Yet nothing for now going on three years. We're speaking with attorney Stephen Cohn. He's a partner at Cohn, Cohn and Colapinto. And I guess we can move on to the Securities and Exchange Commission. You're finding something that they need <laughs> so to do. We're having fun. We're having fun now, aren't we? Yes, we it, are, actually. Okay. So there's a bill, again, a bipartisan bill, equal number of Democrats and Republicans. So you have Senator Chuck Grassley, conservative Republican from Iowa, co-sponsoring it with Elizabeth Warren, liberal Democrat from Massachusetts. No opposition. Other senators from both parties supporting this bill. It would do two things. First, it would permit whistleblowers who report to internal compliance and their supervisors, their audit committees, to be covered and not be subject to retaliation pursuant to the Dodd-Frank Act. Right now, if a whistleblower for a company goes to the head of their audit committee and is fired, they have no rights under Dodd-Frank. This would change that. Everyone supports it. Second, there's massive delays. The SEC program has been very successful. Thousands of people have come in. They've awarded many awards to whistleblowers. But what we know is there's literally hundreds upon hundreds of valid whistleblowers waiting in the queue, sometimes up to three to five years, just to get their award, which is required by statute. So you have a whistleblower who's lost their job. The government has collected, say, hundreds of millions of dollars in sanctions. The law says they're supposed to get an award for their contribution. Yet, they could sit unemployed. I even had a client once who had to go on to Medicaid for health insurance. Total poverty because they'd lost their job waiting for what was their legal entitlement. So this statute puts a one-year requirement on the SEC to make an initial determination covers internal. Simple changes to make the law work. Total bipartisan support, stalled. And you're finding the same problem at the IRS, repeal by delay. The IRS takes it to a new level. Their average 
delay average that they admit to in their reports is 10 years. Essentially, the program is the walking dead. What whistleblower can wait 10 years for a payment of an award for which they are legally entitled, to which the government has concluded the prosecution? It shows an apathy. It shows an administrative hostility to whistleblowing, a cultural issue that does exist within the federal government. We'll address that down below where it just isn't the priority it should be. And again, this comes back to the Treasury Department that hasn't done the AML rules. The IRS is under Treasury. It isn't a priority supporting these whistleblowers. So this bill would simply say that if you delay an award to a fully qualified whistleblower for over one year, you have to pay them interest on the money they're supposed to get paid. And our experts know that the IRS is like tuned to money. And if there was an interest requirement, they most likely would prioritize the payments. There's other reforms in there, but that's the key. And the delay has been totally undermining the reporting of large-scale tax evasion. All right. And the list goes on. We'll have to do the lightning round here for your last three priorities for Congress here. Strengthen the False Claims Act. There is a matter for the Commodities Future Trading Commission and for just simply basic respect by the federal government for whistleblowers. So just to put these three into better context, the CFTC fund, there's just not enough money in the fund to pay the whistleblower. To understand it, the fund is created by the sanctions whistleblowers bring into the government. No whistleblower, no fund, no money to this fund. But the fund has a low cap. So I would say at least 95% of the sanctions that come into the CFTC just pass on to the federal budget. So when it's time to compensate the whistleblower, there's no money there. It's a very simple reform, full bipartisan support. No one expected the CFTC whistleblower program to be as successful as it's been. And they have to have a fund to pay the people. Simple. The false claims in the respect of the agencies, all of this is really at the heart that there remains resistance to whistleblowing within the federal bureaucracy. Some agents and officials love whistleblowers. They're really supportive. They're doing a fantastic job, but others don't. So that's why we're really pushing this idea of National Whistleblower Day, which has received unanimous support in the U.S. Senate for 10 consecutive years. And it's essentially requiring federal agencies to look at the contributions of whistleblowers, publicize them, and educate their own workforce and the public as to why whistleblowing is important as really a cornerstone to change the underlying culture that impacts all of these problems. Wow. So Congress can't even get done what it agrees on. Now it's easy to see why they can't get done what they don't agree on, I guess. What's so frustrating about this is that you have some really good laws on the books, excellent laws, and we see how they can work and how whistleblowers can be fully supported, can be fully compensated. And so then we look at 
problems within these laws or very technical reforms that are needed to make what is really a good foundation to be effective, not just to some high-profile cases, but to the run-of-the-mill average whistleblower just trying to get compensation, just trying to feed their family, just trying to survive, and not forced to undergo delays and other roadblocks. So some of these laws are working fantastic. Others are stalled up. Over 80% of the American people want to see these stronger protections. And it's so incumbent for people to really raise their voices and say, let's get the job done. Attorney Stephen Cohn is a partner at Cohn Cohn Colapinto. As always, thanks so much. Thank you so much. We'll post this interview along with a link to his National Law Review article at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. 
And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.